Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that though they malign you as evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. For the Lord's sake, accept the authority of every human institution, whether of the emperor as supreme or of governors as sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing right, you should silence the ignorance of the foolish. As slaves of God, live as free people, yet do not use your freedom as a pretext for evil. Honor everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. As Peter turns to exhortation, he adopts a form of discourse that we find in Colossians and in Ephesians. It has some parallels in Hellenistic Jewish literature as well as in Stoic and Aristotelian philosophy. It's often known as the household code, uh, a table of household duties. Um, it was widely believed that the, the basic unit of the state was the family, and a well-ordered household was essential to the the smooth functioning of the larger political body. And so philosophers talked about the various duties that people had to one another as members of the city and as members of households. Um, we've, we've talked a number of times about the ways in, in which, for the ancient uh, Greeks and Romans, the gods were part of the city itself. Uh, politics and religion were completely intertwined because the polis, the city, was a city of gods and men. Uh, and as philosophy develops in the Hellenistic period and people's view widens from their own particular polis, their own city, to larger kingdoms and, and empires, um, there's also a, a sense even of a universal city in which the gods and humans are all, are all members, but ordered in respect to one another. So the gods are at the peak and under them, then, the, the emperor and the governors, and then the head of a household, and then those under the head of household's control. Um, Peter takes up this uh, form, as does Paul. And some of the um, interesting uh, comparisons and contrasts um, focus on the way in which, for Peter in particular, um, there is great attention given to those who, in Greek philosophy, were really not even on the map. That is, we'll see that Peter is going to address everyone in the community, but then he's going to focus in on slaves and on wives whose husbands do not obey the word. Um, and this is a, a striking contrast um, with both Aristotelian and Stoic household theory. That is, Peter is treating the lower, the marginal, the, the subordinate members of the household as fully moral agents. Slaves were not thought by Greek philosophers to be moral beings. They're really not human. And so they can't be addressed with moral exhortations. They're to be ruled, they're to submit, but um, they aren't themselves agents who could do what is right or good. 
virtue is something attainable for freeborn men. Others, like slaves and women, aren't really capable of virtue by definition. Similarly, wives are not seen as independent moral agents. They're not addressed particularly by these Greek household codes. Uh, Peter, on the other hand, not only addresses wives and slaves as moral agents, he makes them paradigmatic for the entire community. So there's a way in which what Peter has to say here, from one point of view, sounds very conventional. There's definitely uh, an accommodationist um, ethos here. Be at peace as far as possible with the wider society. But the very structure of the instructions is, is deeply subversive. Um, it's resistant at the same time as being accommodationist. And I think this, this tension um, is often glossed over, both by more traditional interpretation that kind of takes this patriarchal, hierarchical structure of the ancient household as being God's will for all time in every culture. But it's also, ironically, missed by the sort of reaction from feminist scholars who see the ways in which texts like this can... Um, paint women as victims, but they don't realize the way a text like 1 Peter lifts up women as agents, as moral agents actually making very difficult choices in their setting, um, and in fact resisting in very significant ways the roles that are given to them, imposed on them by the social structure. Uh, There's an article in the Journal of Biblical Literature from a number of years ago by Betsy Bauman Martin Um, that draws attention, in fact, to uh, the very strong agency that women and slaves have in the household code in 1 Peter. And if you're interested in that reference, I can can send you a a scan of the article. Um, Just to reiterate, um, in Greco-Roman philosophy, slaves cannot be exemplars. In 1 Peter, the slaves are the example that everyone in the community is called to follow. And that move is made in First Peter by showing that the behavior to which the slaves are called, to which the whole community called, is in fact an imitation of the pattern that Jesus himself embodied as a slave of God. Um, I'll look at these uh, patches maybe briefly and, um, again, with some fear and trembling, open it up to discussion, uh, just because you know these, these passages are fraught with all kinds of tensions. Um, we don't have to look far in the history of interpretation to know that they have been misused. I think one of the, um, as someone who feels bound by Scripture, I think the answer to misuse of scripture or abuse of scripture is to to read it better and more carefully and more faithfully rather than to stand outside it and say this, to to slap a warning label on it and say, don't go here. Uh, But I want to acknowledge up front that um, women have been encouraged to stay in abusive relationships uh, by people appealing to 1 Peter. Um, Women have uh, been almost given uh, a place as victim because of a misuse of texts like this. Um, men have done a, 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 a grand job of abusing texts like this by focusing in on the bits that seem to, to talk about everyone else's obligations. I want to acknowledge all of that um, and yet say that read in their context, 
and especially read against the story of Christ, which is the, the pattern and the backdrop and the context for everything Peter has to say here, these texts have the potential to liberate, to restore, uh, to build human community. First of all, uh, and last of all, though, Peter addresses the entire community. He's singling out in the middle slaves and women as exemplars for the whole community, and I think in that sense really elevating them as as models for the whole Christian life. But he begins and ends by talking to everybody. And the first paragraph is uh, addressed to this problem that, 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 that John brought up at, in our discussion period. How do Christians, this new royal people, this priesthood, how do they live in relationship to the state that is the context in which they are being built up as a temple to God? He reminds them, again, that they are aliens and strangers. And here, the the two terms are brought together. Um, They're not common in this combination. Um, And I I think here, clearly, Peter is alluding to the narrative in Genesis 23, where the the terms do come together. And this is the, the scene where Abraham, he's just lost his wife, Sarah. He wants a place to bury her, bury her, and he's forced to barter and pay an exorbitant price for a field so he can bury his dead. Here Abraham, the, the, the father of the faithful, is one who, although the heir of the promise, uh, lived as an alien, as a stranger in the promised land. And this is the, the, the identity of this people because they've been called out as God's people and because not yet have they come into their inheritance Before he talks about government or about any social structure, in a sense, I think Peter identifies the main enemy with which we struggle as aliens and exiles, and that is to to struggle with the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. It's a commonplace in Greek and Hellenistic Jewish moral philosophy that the great enemy to to the integrity of the human person is the passions that, that threaten to, to pull us apart, to disintegrate us. The ideal Greek philosopher is one who attains self-mastery, who through reason and discipline is able to put the passions in their proper order. And Jewish philosophers like Philo speak about God's work in the hearts and souls of the faithful as a, as a reordering of their passions. Um, This is why reason can be identified with God's wisdom for Philo. Uh, The logos that gives order to the world, to the human being, is identified with God's own wisdom that that created us in the first place. And so in appealing to to continue this struggle against the passions, I think Peter's telling us that, as, as, as I quoted Solzhenitsyn the other day, that the dividing line between good and evil runs through our hearts. The enemy is not simply out there. The enemy is within and Peter has a discourse here where he, he focuses on the soul. Um, he's talked about uh, earlier um, the, the, the saving of our souls. Here the flesh wars against the soul. I, I don't think we're supposed to, to think in terms of a, a kind of disembodied existence. Um, Peter, in fact, sees our new birth as happening through the resurrection of Jesus. But he does acknowledge that there, there is a kind of um, identity 
that is deeper than just our flesh and body. And it's that place where we can have a relationship with God that God is working redemption. In that deepest part of us, God is working out redemption. And so as those who are waging war at this deep level, we're then called in society, in relationship, to conduct ourselves honestly, uh, honorably, sorry, honestly. Um, He uses a word here for beauty. Honorably is the word for beauty or moral excellence. uh, To I think the King James has here, have your conversation, the conversation of the sex. Your pattern of life should be morally excellent. And I think this is one of the places where 1 Peter doesn't simply withdraw from the world. It acknowledges that there is, a, there is a common good, that others ought to be able to recognize us as those who do what is right and beautiful and excellent. Um, this is a point of contact for mission in 1 Peter, uh, a hope at least that honorable conduct will turn into a witness to the God whose excellencies we proclaim. And so, even though they malign you as evildoers, Peter says they can see your honorable conduct and glorify God when he comes to judge. Interpreters are divided over exactly what does this mean. Does this mean that at the judgment, when you are vindicated, the Gentiles who have been persecuting you will say, oh my gosh, they were God's people, and then be sent off? (laughs) Or does does he envision that they'll actually be brought to faith? through your honorable conduct. When God comes to judge, they will be found as those who have seen your good deeds and glorify God willingly. I I think Peter doesn't make it really clear um, whether this glorifying God is willing or unwilling, but I, I think that's actually part of the strategy of the letter too. Peter doesn't write anybody off. The outsiders are not written off. He doesn't know um, that their stumbling is going to lead to disaster. There's a hopefulness, if not a, um, an explicit statement that those outside will be brought in, there's at least a gospel hope that they will be. I, I know my students struggle a lot, I'm sure you do in the church as well, with, with the exclusivity of the claims of Christ and the wideness of God's mercy. And how do we put those things together? Does Scripture give us hope that in the end, uh, as we were talking last night, love wins? Uh, does that mean that somehow, through Christ, all will be saved. Um, There's a a piece in First Things by um, Richard John Newhouse from a number of years ago that has given me a way of thinking about this. I find really helpful, and I I don't know if it's similar to the kinds of things you say to your congregations, but he, as a Catholic or as a convert to Catholicism, he says, you know, the church does not teach that all are saved. And as a faithful Catholic, I can't teach dogma as dogma that all will be saved. But, he says, the shape of gospel hope is that hell will be empty. And I can hope for that because of my faith in Christ and my trust in God's ability to overcome my rebellion and human rebellion and sin. And, and I love that, that tension. That, uh, and I think this is, uh, there's arguments over where Karl Barth ends up as well, but I think Barth is a careful enough reader of Scripture that he... He never makes the step to universalism. But he speaks about those who ultimately say no to God as, in in a sense, inhabiting an impossible possibility. 
uh, a paradox that some could ultimately say no to God. But because Scripture holds that out as a possibility, um, he's unwilling to, to say in the end that um, God overcomes even human resistance. So I think there's a, there's a real tension here. I think Peter gives us at least a way of, of having a hope that is shaped by witness, that is, is centered on Christ, is um, absolutely committed to, to proclaiming the excellencies of the God who called us out of darkness into light, but that doesn't have to put a period on every sentence, and that in fact continues to engage in hope, even in suffering, because nobody is beyond the pale of God's mercy. Well, he says in verse 13, for the Lord's sake, accept the authority of every human institution. That's how the NRSV translates it. it uh, it's an odd phrase. It could be translated as every human creation or every human creature. He uses the word ketisis here, something which is made. Um, mentioned that, that Peter seems to know Romans. There's, a, I think, a significant contrast here. In Romans 13, Paul says that government is the, the diakonos, the servant or the minister of God. Here, Peter says government is a human creation. It doesn't have divine status. And thinking again about the setting of Asia Minor, where Caesar is now deified, where the, the Roman state operates because it has the, the imprimatur of the gods, uh, Peter says no. It's a human creation, and it's for the Lord's sake that we accept its authority. We subject ourselves for the sake of the Lord, which implies that that government does not have the ultimate place. The Lord does. So the emperor in this human creation is supreme. He sends governors to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right. This um, pretty narrowly defines what the state is supposed to do. They're supposed to recognize those who act honorably, and they're supposed to punish those who do wrong. Now there's a real tension here because you all are conducting yourselves honorably. You are doing what is right, and you are still being maligned. Something's wrong with the government, not with you. And yet subject yourself for the Lord's sake as far as possible. Verse 15 says, It's God's will that by doing right, you should silence the ignorance of the foolish. Now, who are these foolish? If you think about the situation in Pliny's letter, the foolish are certainly the neighbors bringing their neighbors in and accusing them of being Christians. But maybe Pliny the government, governor is one of the foolish. He's not judging rightly from Peter's perspective when he says their refusal to repudiate their belonging to Christ, their refusal to honor our gods and curse the name of Christ is impudence and pride. That's foolishness. And Peter names it as such. Your job, though, for the Lord's sake, is to continue to do good. Because on the day when God comes to judge, they will see, perhaps. They will see and glorify God. Live as those who are free as God's slaves. Here again, um, thinking about the entire community being addressed, there are some who socially are in the position of slaves. Their bodies are owned. They are human property. They are human tools. They are told you have, you have no place in society. You have no humanity. 
Uh, Orlando Patterson, writing recently on slavery, has talked about slavery as social death. People no longer, as slaves, have parents. They no longer have a country. They no longer belong to a people. They are tools. Peter says, no, you are a member of God's people. You are a member of a holy nation, a chosen race. You are God's slaves, and so you can act as free people toward everyone else. At the same time, freedom should not be a cloak for wrongdoing. Honor everyone. Verse 17, I think, uh, epitomizes everything. The, The heading is honor everyone. But then that takes first place is to love the brotherhood, the family of believers, NRSV translates it. Again, a reference to this new birth, this new identity, the new family that they belong to. Priority number one is love one another intensively from the heart. Fear God, honor the emperor. And this distinction that Peter makes between fear and honor will um, be taken up in the mouths of martyrs in the subsequent centuries. We have an early account of a set of martyrs uh, known as the Skeleton Martyrs, and there's a transcript of their trial before the Roman governor. And their spokesman says, in fact, this, we honor the emperor, we fear God. That defines the limit at which, beyond which we will not go. We will pray for the emperor. We will do what is right, but we will fear only God. Peter seems to accommodate, and yet, under that is a clear line beyond which we resist. And that tension is uh, interestingly explored by scholars who who take a a so-called post-colonial perspective Uh, looking at the ways at which subject peoples are always involved in a negotiation of power. But even the most subjected peoples have ways of resisting. Um, And it's a constant negotiation. I think that the most clear-headed of this writing realizes that, that even resistance is often implicated in the structures of power. It's not an idealistic view. It's a, it's a view that recognizes that we're still all caught with these desires that wage war against our souls. But that there is resistance is not insignificant, even when that resistance is hidden. Um, there's an Ethiopian proverb that's often uh, quoted um, in this connection. When the ruler passes by, the wise peasant bows deeply and farts silently. <laughs> <laughs> I think Peter's on to something like that, although not in those terms. I can imagine Martin Luther saying that, you know, but uh, although what he said, his farts could be heard from Wittenberg to Leipzig. (laughs) Betsy Bowman Martin writes about the wives caught in a household in which they were expected by society to adopt the religion of the head of household. In fact, um, there's a really lovely uh, letter, treatise by uh, the Greek philosopher Plutarch, who lived at the end of the first century, beginning of the second century. He had a young woman who was a student of philosophy with him, Eurydice, uh, whom he clearly loved very deeply. And Eurydice gets married, and as a wedding gift, Plutarch gives them uh, a little pamphlet on how to be married, advice to the bride and groom, it's called. And you can can find it translated online for free. 
Plutarch is a really attractive figure to me. I mean, he's very much in the tradition of Greek philosophy, um, but in interesting ways, he, he moderates the kind of uh, hard view of hierarchy. Um, he, he imagines, of course, that the, the husband's role is to guide and direct the wife. The wife needs to be guided. And yet the husband should do this in a gentle and understanding way. Um, and there's ways in which Plutarch sounds a lot like what Peter's going to say to the husbands. Um, he, he writes at, at one point, um, he says, Rich men and kings who honor philosophers adorn both themselves and their beneficiaries. But philosophers who court the rich do nothing to increase the reputation of these people, but merely diminish their own. It is the same with wives. If wives submit to their husbands, they are praised. If they try to rule them, they cut a worse figure than their subjects. But the husband should rule the wife, not as a master rules a slave, but as the soul rules the body, sharing her feelings and growing together with her in affection. That is the just way. One can care for one's body without being a slave to its pleasures and desires, and one can rule a wife while giving her enjoyment and kindness. That from the husband's perspective. He says to the wives, however, on the other side, he says to Eurydice, a wife ought not to have friends of her own, but use her husbands as their common stock. And the first and most important friends are the gods. A married woman should therefore worship and recognize the gods whom her husband holds dear, and these alone. The door must be closed to strange cults and foreign superstitions. No god takes pleasure in cults performed furtively and in secret by a woman. Uh, this is a, a fairly mild statement of a widespread view. Wives ought not worship any god except the gods recognized by the head of the household. In fact, in Roman texts, women taking up foreign superstition, uh, superstitions, uh, this is responsible for everything from barrenness to failure in business to disorder and discord in the household. Peter, however, addresses women who obey the Lord, whose husbands yet disobey the word. Slaves, similarly, were expected to participate in appropriate ways in the household cult. And slaves who did not could be severely punished. Uh, a second century writer says that slaves who became Christians or adopted another religion other than the householder's religion would not be trusted with the children of the house. Um, they were also in a dangerous position. And yet Peter addresses slaves who honor their masters, but fear God. In doing so, Peter attributes to these subordinate figures in society moral agency. He recognizes that they are forced to negotiate boundaries that are fraught with conflict, that they are called to make decisions which include determining how their Christian way of life is to impact their daily life. And that their vulnerable locations may make them the ones in the community who bear the brunt of the suffering with which Peter is so concerned. So it's significant, I think, that Peter offers a reinterpretation of the suffering that they, that they experience. And in reinterpreting it, holds up their suffering 
as a model for what the entire community is called to do as they negotiate their own boundaries, as even heads of households will find themselves in conflict with the demands of the state. So he retells the story of Jesus. And I've got a a chart uh, here. I think it's fascinating the way in which, without quoting, Peter rewrites the servant song in Isaiah 53 and some bits from Isaiah 50 into a story, into a narrative about Jesus, looking at the vulnerability and the violations of the bodies of those who stand against the state. Peter says, the violations you are experiencing are a sharing in the violations of Christ's body, in his suffering, in his crucifixion. And just as the sufferings of Christ are in God's mysterious plan, the path to the glory that came afterwards, so as you share Christ's sufferings, you also will share in his glory. So he writes, slaves, servants, this is actually the word for household servants, uh, like I mentioned, one of the indications perhaps that we, we're, these, this letter is addressed mainly to an urban context. Household servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the kind and gentle, but also to the overbearing. For one is approved if mindful of God, he endures pain while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you do wrong and are beaten for it, you take it patiently? But if when you do right and suffer for it, you take it patiently, you have God's approval. For it is this to this that you have been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he trusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wound you were healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. As Peter tells the story, Christ is an example for imitation. He did this that you might follow in his steps. But Christ is also The paradigm, I'm trying to find the right word. Christ is not simply an example to be imitated from outside. What Christ has done in walking this path makes possible our walking of the path with him. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, but he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We're called in the path of Christ as those whom Christ has renewed and enabled to follow that path. Um, There's here a notion that you find in Paul's soteriology as well of interchange. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of controversy in the church about uh, metaphors for atonement, ways of thinking about what God was doing on the cross. I think it's significant that that the most basic idea, I would argue, in Paul and also in Peter is one of of interchange. It's an idea as early as Irenaeus, Christ became what we are so that in union with him, we might become what he is. Christ took our sin. By his wound, we were healed. He has not only taken our place, he's taken us up into his life so that we might live to righteousness. 
The call to follow in Christ's steps is a call to grow up into salvation. It's another way of saying desire that pure spiritual milk that you might grow from babies into the full humanity that is Christ. So here, once again, Christ is both model and also uh, the one who does in us, who works out in us what he has done for us on our behalf. Um, Slaves are called to this hard path because Christ suffered for them and because Christ has made possible their doing right even in the face of suffering. Wives whose husbands are not believers are similarly addressed. It's interesting that their position is similar to that of slaves. Um, I think just this very fact has to make us pause before we draw easy lines between 1 Peter 3 and the modern world. We do not live in a society that has the same assumptions about a well-ordered household, or most of us don't. And um, I think there are good reasons for allowing Scripture to question the very assumptions of pagan society. And I think Peter will do this in verse 7. But these wives are in households where the head of household is not a believer, And the counsel there is that they might be, these non-believing husbands might be won over by the good conduct, the right conduct of their wives, even without a word. The whole community has been called to do what is right so that the Gentiles might glorify God. This is happening on the micro level within the household. Wives, you are to conduct yourselves honorably so that your husbands might be won. He mentions without a word, which suggests to me that perhaps... The suffering of these wives is coming about because they've already shared words with their husbands. Um, Their faith is known. It's already a point of tension. They are already under pressure. And the counsel here is to go soft with the words then and let your life speak. Peter does draw on um, widespread themes, topoi in the wider society. Plutarch um, speaks actually about women's adornment to Eurydice, He says, uh, adornment, said Crates, is what adorns. And what adorns a woman is what makes her well-ordered. We get cosmetics for ordering the the appearance. Cosmos is the world, the ordered world. He's playing here in the Greek on this. Adornment is not that which makes you beautiful to the sight. It's what makes you well-ordered as a human being. And so it's not gold or emerald or scarlet, Plutarch says, but that which gives an impression of dignity, discipline, and modesty. In his own way, Plutarch is elevating women far beyond many of his fellow philosophers, uh, for whom it's, again, the free man who can be the well-ordered human being. Plutarch is saying a woman can equally be a well-ordered human being, and in fact, that's the real beauty, the beauty of the heart. Peter draws on this as well. Uh, Perhaps some of the families being addressed Uh, in this letter are from at least middling strata of society where it's possible to get your hair done, to get to wear fancy clothes. We have Greco-Roman moralists in this period. We have Paul, uh, you know, lamenting the way in which status is displayed by gold and finery and elaborate hairstyles and things. Um, Here is a place where Peter is saying, you know, the wives who follow Christ ought to model the very best that the culture recognizes. Let that adornment, though, 
he says, be the inner beauty, not just of a well-ordered person, but that is defined particularly as a gentle and quiet spirit, precious in God's sight. In fact, this is the way the holy women of long ago who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. Um, he makes a move here. Uh, Janet was, was posing this question earlier. He, he offers Sarah as an example, who obeyed Abraham and called him Kurios, Master, Lord. Uh, and Janet was just saying, did he get the joke or do we, is the joke on him? Because, of course, as you read the story of Sarah and Abraham, she's not exactly a little wallflower. <laughs> she takes a lot of initiative and is, is fully a participant in the laughter and joy uh, of Isaac's coming. You know, Isaac's named laughter because of her reaction to the, God, the grace of God. So perhaps Peter does uh, understand what he's doing here. He's got his tongue in cheek a little bit by saying, Sarah's your example. Um, a gentle and quiet spirit, interestingly, I've heard this so often at growing up. It sounds like a very feminine characteristic, doesn't it? Jesus says, come to me, you who are burdened, heavy laden, because I am gentle and lowly of heart. This is the virtue that Christ offers as an example to men and women in the community. And here, once again, the woman, like the slave, is the one who sets an example for the entire community. That gentleness that quietness that comes from a settled trust in God is what we're all called to. You have become Sarah's daughters, she says, as long as you do what is right and never let fears alarm you. And as we come into the next passage, we're going to see once again the whole community is exhorted not to give way to fear as they continue to do right even if that brings suffering. Verse 7 addresses the husbands, and obviously these are the husbands in the community and here, I think, is where you see the really radical turn that the household code in Peter takes. Husbands, show consideration for your wives in the same way. Wait, slaves have been told to, to live in subjection for the sake of honoring God. Wives have been told to live in subjection for the sake of honoring God. Husbands, in the same way, you live in subjection in this relationship, honoring God by showing consideration for your wives and your life together, paying honor to the woman, and here I hate the NRSV, the weaker sex. It doesn't say that. It says the weaker vessel. This is just a statement uh, which doesn't cover everyone, but in general, the feminine body is less strong than the male body. Certainly in the ancient world, that was just a commonplace. Look and accommodate and care for and consider the structure of this wife with whom you live, because despite this weaker vessel, they too are heirs, co-heirs of the gracious gift of life. There's no longer hierarchy here. And this is a tension that shows up, I think, throughout the New Testament. There's both a hierarchy and a subversion of that hierarchy, but Peter, I don't think, could say it any clearer. You are co-heirs of the gracious gift of life. And the warning to the husband's um, boy, certainly in light of what we've been talking about all, all week so far about prayer, that not to treat one's wife this way is to put a block in one's own relationship with God. It's to hinder that most precious of relationships. So um, I'm certainly in some ways, again, an apologist for Peter. I think Peter needs to be given a hearing, acknowledging how much these texts have been distorted by 
patriarchy, by our own sinful propensity as males to want to take charge, by the own brokenness that we experience in our relationships, I think Peter offers us a word of hope by reframing. Those who are in the lowest place are actually examples for everyone. And it's Christ who took the lowest place that validates the honor in that calling. It is wives who seem to be subordinate and weaker and in needs of guidance that Peter says are co-heirs with you. They're not those you rule. They're those that you pray with and care for and consider and treat as an equal. Um, These texts, I'm convinced, are um, dangerous texts. The interpretation of these texts is fraught with all kinds of problems. And in most of the churches I've been in, nobody touches these. I was looking, uh, Piper was mentioning to me that First Peter's in the lectionary right now. And, of course, predictably, the passage for Easter 6a is 3.8 to 22, and the passage for Easter 4a is 2.19 to 25. <laughs> We're just not touching this. We're not touching this with a 10-foot pole. And yet, where, where are we going to learn how to live in a married relationship if not in the church? We don't have really great models in our culture. Um, Many of us don't have really great models in our homes. I'm actually deeply thankful that both my parents and my in-laws had a kind of consideration and love and respect for one another that that I've tried to emulate. But man, so many people in our congregations have come from real brokenness. If we're not going to talk about this stuff, what hope is there? And um, Peter's model is to speak to those in the lower position. Interestingly, Colossians and Ephesians give the greater burden to those in the higher position in ancient society. And I think Ephesians is an interesting counterbalance here because the greater burden is put on husbands there to model Christ by laying down his life for his wife. Uh, I think there's a, a sense in which these texts need to be embraced in their fullness and they can, they can be faced head on with all of the problems that they create um, but, man, I look out at, at what the culture has to offer my kids as models of what it means to be a fulfilled man or woman, and it's pretty empty. And, um, and I look at the abuses, and I want to look at them straight on, um, and listening to women's voices for me has been important because things that I would never dream of hearing in a text like this, I can hear through their ears. But all the same, um, I think of Peter's words to Jesus kind of acknowledging his lack of understanding in John 6. Jesus says, you're going to go away. And he says, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? And I think Scripture invites us to continue to struggle, but to do so in hope that, that God has a good word for us uh, and that even um, relationships so fraught as marriage can, can so often be offers us a picture of co-heirs of the gracious gift of life that has the potential to to bring healing and to bring a, a way of doing good and right that other people might notice and might see as uh, a way of glorifying the God who's called us out of darkness into light. Um, I think because it's 1135 and we have small groups and because I'm just a little bit chicken, I'm not going to take questions. <laughs> And I'll let you come and just nab me, yeah, either 
one-on-one, -on -one, or I'm sure at mail call or tomorrow we'll take questions. <laughs> Thanks, but enjoy the small group time.